Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. After a short summer break, the podcast is back with a new episode. This time we'll cover how, through a twist of fate, two brothers started a unique and collaborative surgical practice in a small Midwestern town in the U.S. that would grow to become a global leader in surgical healthcare. Let's get into the story of the Brothers Mayo in this episode of Legends of Surgery. The history of the Mayo brothers would be incomplete if we didn't start with their father, William Worrell Mayo. Born in a region of Greater Manchester, England on May 31, 1819, he spent his early life training as a chemist at Owens College in Manchester, and then working in the weaving industry as a cloth dyer. William Sr. would later work as a tailor before leaving for the U.S. in 1846, settling first in Buffalo, New York, then Lafayette, Indiana, where he opened a Hall of Fashion with another tailor. William Sr. would then again change careers, attending Indiana Medical College starting in 1849 at the age of 30, then finishing his training at the University of Missouri. He eventually contracted malaria, so he moved to Minnesota in 1854 to recover, with the thought that it would be a more healthful climate, a decision that would be fortuitous. But before we continue, let's talk a little bit about malaria. Some listeners may be surprised to hear of someone contracting the disease in the U.S., but it was endemic there for centuries. Malaria, a parasite carried by the mosquito, first arrived in North America with Christopher Columbus's ships in 1492, although it didn't get established until 1607 within the Jamestown settlement in Virginia. It eventually spread to the point where malaria was endemic in every state in America except Alaska. Did you know that George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Ulysses S. Grant all suffered from malaria? It wasn't until 1951 that malaria was effectively eliminated from the U.S. Anyways, back to William Sr. He recovered from malaria and established himself in the small Minnesotan village called Cronin's Precinct, where he became known as the Little Doctor, as he was only 1.63 meters or 5 foot 4 inches tall. At the start of the American Civil War, Dr. Mayo tried to get an appointment as a regimental surgeon in Minnesota, but was rejected. He then accompanied an expedition to the Minnesota frontier during the U.S.-Dakota War, fought between the U.S. Army and several bands of Dakota, a Native American tribe, where he helped to establish emergency hospitals for refugees and wounded. By 1863, Dr. Mayo moved to Rochester, Minnesota, and was appointed an examining surgeon of the Draft Enrollment Board. While in Rochester, besides practicing medicine, he also served as city mayor, alderman, member of the school board, and even served in the Minnesota State Senate from 1891 to 1895. Dr. Mayo spent time in New York and Pennsylvania learning surgical techniques during 1869, and his practice continued to grow, and by the time his sons joined him, it was well established. We'll come back to that, but let's finish with Dr. William Worrell Mayo first. He retired in 1892 at the age of 73, but given his history of having many interests, it won't come as a surprise that in 1910, he became interested in the extraction and distillation of alcohol from animal and vegetable wastes. Remember, he had trained as a chemist in England. One day, there was an extraction equipment accident, and his hand and part of his arm had to be amputated. There were post-operative complications, and Dr. Mayo Sr. died in March of 1911, just before his 92nd birthday. Alright, let's rewind a bit and talk about his sons, the Mayo brothers. William James Mayo was born June 29, 1861, and Charles Horace Mayo was born four years later on July 19, 1865. As soon as they were old enough, the brothers would accompany their father on ward rounds and house calls. One anecdote I came across from a few sources told a story about Charlie at age nine witnessing an abdominal operation by his father. When the doctor providing the anesthesia fainted, Charlie took over and the patient made it through the surgery and made a full recovery. 
and by age 12, the elder brother William was acting as his father's first assistant in the operating room. William would go on to get his MD degree in 1883 from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor and did some additional training at New York Postgraduate Medical School and New York Polyclinic Medical School. Charles got his MD from Chicago Medical College, later part of Northwestern University Medical School, in 1888 and did postgraduate work in New York City. Now let's cover the active nature that was a twist of fate that led to the creation of the Mayo Clinic. On August 20, 1883, a tornado devastated Rochester, which I mentioned in Sister Mary Joseph Nodule podcast way back at number 9. It destroyed the high school, the courthouse, and numerous businesses. 24 people were killed and many more were injured. At the time, there was no hospital in Rochester, so Dr. Mayo Sr. converted the local dance hall into a temporary medical facility. He and his two sons worked diligently to help the people and were assisted by four sisters of St. Francis. Mother Alfred Mose of the Sisters of St. Francis persuaded Dr. Mayo to establish a new hospital under her direction, if he would be the chief. Dr. Mayo and his two sons initially were the hospital's only professional staff, which opened on September 30th, 1889 at St. Mary's Hospital. The Mayo brothers inherited their father's large medical practice as he eased himself out of the practice soon after the opening of the hospital. Originally, it contained just 27 beds and a single operating room. From the beginning, the brothers were committed to provide care to anyone in need, regardless of ability to pay, and soon attracted large and increasing numbers of patients. Up to 1905, all surgical work was done by the brothers, doing up to 3,000 procedures annually. In the early years, they assisted each other, and later on they had their own assistants, but divided up the work to cover as broad a menu of surgical procedures as possible to offer patients, operating on alternating mornings three days a week, and serving as surgical consultants at their downtown clinic in the afternoon. One of their innovations was to make treatment a collaborative effort between staff doctors, trainee physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers, including social workers, dietitians, and laboratory staff. They formed the concept of a cooperative group clinic. Patients would be seen at the office, a large building in the center of town, containing every facility and appliance available so that patients wouldn't have to go from house to house, seeing the physician, then radiographer, then surgeon. They set it up to maximize their time spent doing their work, which was treating patients. This could be considered the earliest example of group surgical practice in the U.S., and perhaps they are able to make this early mark because of their close relationship as brothers. Will Mayo was a great organizer and administrator, and specialized in surgery of the abdomen and gastrointestinal operations. Charlie Mayo was an expert and original operator known as a surgical wonder and able to work in a wide variety of surgical fields. He originated modern procedures in goiter surgery and in neurosurgery, including some for Tic de la Rue, a disorder covered in Podcast 42 on Harvey Cushing operations for cataracts of the eye, and orthopedics, including an operation for bunions, called a bunionectomy. He also worked in the areas of ear, nose, and throat surgery, chest surgery, and urology, a real jack-of-all-trades. So how did they develop and keep up their skills working in a small center away from the circles of academia? They were dedicated from the outset to find all opportunities to improve. One story tells of their early years where they would jump in a buggy and drive out to a slaughterhouse to practice eye operations on the heads of sheep and pigs. They also compensated by reading the surgical journals diligently, deciding which of the new operations and which of the masters they wanted to see. Then every year, one of the brothers went to Europe and visited surgical centers to learn the latest techniques and bring them back. The secret to their success was learning from others, taking what was useful, and making their center a composite of the world's best surgery. And word would soon spread about the Mayo brothers. In early 1899, Dr. William J. Mayo wrote a report of the 105 operations he'd done to date 
on the gallbladder and its ducts and submitted the paper to the American Journal of the Medical Sciences for publication. Dr. Alfred Stengel of Philadelphia, editor of the first-ranking Medical Monthly, asked about the experience of local leading surgeons and found that none had done anything near a hundred such operations. He doubted that an unknown country doctor could achieve such numbers and sent the paper back with regrets. Five years later, the successor as editor of the journal would publish Dr. Mayo's report of his first 1,000 operations on the gallbladder. Despite its small size, Rochester became a surgical mecca and surgeons from all over the world would travel to witness the Mayo brothers at work. Here's a quote from one of my sources. Quote, the constant stream of patients moving through the Mayo's unpretentious offices had to be seen to be believed, and that some of the finest surgery in all the world was being done in a modest hospital in that small, far western town. End quote. News of the Mayo Brothers' innovations drew hundreds of visiting doctors, sparking the creation of the International Surgeons Club in 1906. The 300 members were visiting physicians who wanted to share what they had learned while in Rochester. They would meet at the end of the day, and the discussions evolved into a regular course of lectures, becoming, quote, a postgraduate school of surgery without equal elsewhere in America, end quote. So what other lessons can we take from the Mayo Brothers' example? Part of the recipe of their success was humility. When an operation failed and a patient died, the brothers would spend hours together reviewing what they'd done to learn from their mistakes, and it became known in medical circles that they always reported their failures as well as their successes. They kept their egos in check, and employed the best men they could find, and made them true associates. The brothers wanted to surround themselves with surgeons of outstanding ability, not lackeys. Dr. Will Mayo would say that there was a place in the clinic for anyone with originality, ability, and energy enough to develop a new field of specialization. The final ingredient was patient-centered care. The brothers Mayo believed in giving the patient everything possible, and in a way were ahead of their time in patient-centered medicine. The basic tenet that the patient is first, is one of their most lasting legacies. Let me quote Helen Clape Saddle, a male biographer, to summarize just what the Mayo brothers had created. Quote, Through more accurate diagnosis, better anesthesia, and greatly improved pre- and post-operative treatment, added to its own steady progress in technique, surgery had reached a point far in advance of its state in the days when the Mayo brothers won their phenomenal reputation. In all these developments, the clinic, of course, shared in the progress of medicine and surgery generally, it pioneered in its share of instances, but in most it continued the peculiar contribution of the Mayo brothers themselves by adopting the best discoveries of others and through intelligent use of them in its huge practice, refining them and extending their scope, end quote. The private practice continued to grow, and due to the need for more space, a new clinic was built. On March 6, 1914, the building of the Mayo Clinic was officially opened. On February 8, 1915, the brothers donated $1.5 million to establish the Mayo Foundation for Medical Education and Research with the University of Minnesota. Charles was professor of surgery at the University of Minnesota Graduate School from 1915 to 1936. And during World War I, the brothers alternated as chief consultant for all surgical services in the U.S. Army, serving with the rank of colonel. After the war, each brother was commissioned as a brigadier general in the Medical Corps Reserve. Will remained active in surgery at the clinic until 1928, and in administration until 1933. Charlie retired from surgery in 1930 and from administration in 1933. Charlie was actually forced into retirement by a retinal hemorrhage, which is bleeding at the back of the eye, which can affect vision. Sadly, his eldest son, Charles W. Mayo, was in an adjoining room waiting for his first operation as his father's assistant when this occurred. Charlie recovered but never operated again. Following retirement, the brothers purchased neighboring homes in Tucson, Arizona, returning regularly to Rochester as board members of the Mayo Clinic. 
On a trip to Chicago in May 1939, Charles fell ill and died of lobar pneumonia. Two months later, his elder brother lost his battle with stomach cancer and died July 28, 1939. This story is more than just a medical one, but one of, about their lifelong close relationship. Everyone who knew them understood that they were united in all things, at least publicly, and spoke with one voice. Their statements would always begin, My brother and I. Although the brothers had passed, the Mayo Clinic continued to be a leader in surgical care. Charles William Mayo, son of Charles Horace Mayo, as mentioned earlier, was the third generation of Mayos to work in surgery. He was born in 1898 and served as a surgeon and member of the Board of Governors of the Mayo Clinic. By 1972, the Mayo Medical School came into being. In 1986, the Mayo Clinic merged with the nearby St. Mary's Hospital and Rochester Methodist Hospital. Mayo Clinic satellites have opened up in a number of locations in the U.S. and have continued the legacy of the brothers by focusing on patient care, collaborative treatment, and cutting-edge research and education. I came across many quotes from the brothers, which I'll share on Twitter, but I'll end on this one by William J. Mayo. Quote, We have never been allowed to lose sight of the fact that the main purpose to be served by the clinic is the care of the sick. End quote. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will be number 50 in the series, and it'll be on one of the biggest names in surgery that we have yet to cover, Dr. John Hunter. And to celebrate the 50th episode, I'll be releasing a short bonus episode on an interesting topic that I won't reveal today. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.